Hello and welcome to Hooked on History. This is the fourth episode in our series on UK drug use in the 1950s and 60s. In this episode, we'll look at public reactions to cannabis use in the 1950s. It's, um, it's turned out to be quite a topical episode for a podcast covering events that took place six decades ago. On May 25th, George Floyd was killed by a Minneapolis police officer. It would become the, uh, the homicide that broke the camel's back. In the US, mass protests broke out all over the country. However, these demonstrations were not contained to the US's borders. Black Lives Matter protests spread across tens of thousands of cities throughout Asia, Europe, and Australia. Here in the UK, a unique slogan was added to the Chorus of Remembrance for the Killed and Outrage at Authorities. Quote, The UK is not innocent. Britain has had its own long-standing frictions between the police and its black population. The reality of unequal treatment by the police is laid bare in stop-and-search statistics. A uh, 2018 LSE study found that black people were nine times more likely than whites to be stopped and searched for drugs, despite using drugs at a lower rate. By telling the story of cannabis in the 50s, this episode uncovers some of the origins of this unequal treatment. As this is the first episode covering a quote-unquote drug, uh, those are the kind of drugs that are splashed across tabloid headlines and are hard to get from a doctor. There's an old adage you should know. It's not about the drug. This is especially true for public perceptions surrounding cannabis use in Britain. As a result, this episode is actually going to start in the 40s, and it's not going to start talking about weed either, but a ship, an old German troop carrier, bobbing its way toward England across choppy Atlantic seas. The ship's journey filled the Labour government with anxiety. Prime Minister Clement Attlee did whatever he could to stop this quote-unquote incursion. He tried to have the ship diverted away from the island, but despite his best efforts, he was told nothing could be done. However, the year was 1948, and the ship wasn't bristling with Nazi stormtroopers. It had since been converted into a passenger liner, and renamed the Empire Windrush. It was currently carrying citizens of the British Empire who were looking for work, and what made Adley treat this ship bound out of Jamaica as such a threat was that the passengers were black. The irrationality and racism this reaction is glaring, especially in the face of how badly Britain needed these workers. Britain had suffered heavily during the war, and in 1946, the government estimated they needed a million extra workers to make up for post-war manpower shortages. The Ministry of Labour came up with a series of flimsy excuses as to why Afro-Caribbean citizens should not be used to make up this shortage. They'd apparently find the coal mines too hot, despite coming from the tropics. They would apparently find outdoor work too cold, despite thousands of them having served in the sub-zero conditions of World War II bombers. Instead, the government hoped to make up for the labour shortage with white European immigrants. However, 
Atlee had no legal right to divert a ship carrying citizens, and the Empire Windrush made it to its destination. Its passengers were initially greeted with a positive, if curious, reception. Arrivals at Tilbury. The Empire Windrush brings to Britain 500 Jamaicans. Many are ex-servicemen who know England. They serve this country well. In Jamaica, they couldn't find work. Discouraged but full of hope, they sailed for Britain. Citizens of the British Empire coming to the mother country with good intent. Prodded by public opinion, the colonial office gives them a more cordial reception than was at first envisaged. Many are to be found jobs. For the passengers, this journey represented opportunity, in the land imperial propaganda had taught them was their motherland, and which many had just fought to protect. The Empire Windrush and the ships that followed also granted escape from the colonial West Indies, which had recently been devastated by a hurricane and was enduring an economic crisis. The poet James Barry described what emigration to Britain meant to him and his literate friends. Windrush was particularly important because how old was I then? I was in my early twenties and uh, as we all uh, left school and one or two managed to move on to university and so on and there were those of us who were left and uh, we, we were full of anxiety and worry that we, our education was going to stop and our parents were not in any position to um, give us further education. And so these were the kind of anxieties with me and those friends that who were like that. And um, the idea of the ship arriving, um, taking workers abroad, was, um, was quite a happy moment for me and you know my friends who were, who were similar. Barry would conclude his poem to travel the ship. Man, Jamaica is a place where generations them start out having nothing, earning nothing, and dead leaving nothing. I did wake up every morning and find nothing change. Children them shame to go to school barefoot, only a penny to buy lunch. Man, I follow this little light for change. I follow it, man. One of the Windrush's passengers who would go on to gain international renown put his excitement to song. Now, may I ask you your name? Lord Kitchener. Lord Kitchener. Now, I'm told that you are really the king of Calypso singers. Is that right? Yes, that's well, now, so will you sing for us? Right now. Yes. London is the place for me. London. This lovely city, you can go to France or America, India, Asia or Australia, but you must come back to London City. Well, believe me, I am speaking broad-mindedly. I am glad to know my mother country. The generation of black immigrants who followed would be named after the ship, the Windrush Generation. At first, the migration was relatively small, in the thousands, but by the mid-50s, this increased to the tens of thousands after another hurricane hit and British public services, like the NHS and London Transport, started paying for people from the colonies to come over and fill key jobs. As this political hysteria surrounding their arrival might suggest, the cordial introduction didn't last. 
centuries atop an empire where white people govern people of color, left large sections of the population with deep racial prejudices. Race riots quickly broke out, where white populations attacked black places of residence. When the police eventually did show up, the black victims tended to be the only ones arrested, initiating a long-standing mistrust between Britain's black communities and the police. An unofficial colour bar which had been already used to segregate Britain's small number of existing ethnic minorities was enforced to the extent that Britain essentially became a quasi-Jim Crow state. Good, well-paying jobs were out of reach of Britain's black population. Uh, one particularly egregious example of this was E.R. Braithwaite, a black man who served in the Air Force during the war, then went on to get a physics master's degree from Cambridge. But despite his lofty credentials, nobody would hire him in his field. Eventually, he was persuaded to become a teacher and was placed in one of the East End's worst schools. He went on to write about the experience in his book and later film To Sir With Love. Housing was also hard to find. The rubric No Coloreds often accompanied advertisements for rooms to let. In 1957, the BBC followed a young black man, Ben Busquette, around with a camera as he tried to find a room to rent in Brixton. The resulting documentary recorded rejection after rejection. People made a sort of <laughs> silly excuses. I wouldn't have you because um, my husband wouldn't like it. Others, I know I don't take blacks. Um, and, and things like that. This was awful. It was here in the private life, the hearth and the home, that Brits had the most trouble accommodating the new black inhabitants. A 1951 survey found that while 70% of respondents didn't mind working with people of colour, only half would invite such a person into their home, and just 30% would allow them to stay. Those who couldn't handle the idea of an ethnic minority staying for tea were asked to give a reason. Many of these responses revolved around feelings of otherness, cultural differences. Others were afraid of what the neighbours would think. But most could only muster vagities. Don't know, can't say, or just don't like them. So why am I telling you all this? Well, as I said, when studying a quote-unquote drug, especially when looking at societal reactions to it, it's usually not about the drug itself. And this racism is the context, and frankly, inseparable from the public conversation about cannabis.
This is not about the drug theme for cannabis is glaringly apparent in how arbitrarily it became illegal in the UK. In the 19th century, the British Empire got into the dealing of drugs in a big way. You see the opium wars for more details. And cannabis was no exception. While basically unused in Britain itself, it was a popular drug in many Asian, African, and Caribbean colonies. The empire made tremendous amounts of money from taxing the drug's trade, especially in South Asia. By 1900, the cannabis tax made up a fifth of Burma's revenue. This profitable situation was challenged by a diplomatic conference, which um, got out of hand, well, at least from the British point of view, anyway. In 1924, the League of Nations, a forerunner to the UN, held a conference to limit the trade of opium and cocaine. It ended up being hijacked by Egypt, who used the occasion to push their own agenda of stopping the cannabis trade. Egypt had its own domestic reasons for doing this, but the move also held the added bonus of blooding their ex-colonial master's nose by banning their valuable cash crop. Britain fought hard to keep the cannabis trade alive, but in the end failed. But the British Empire was not one to let laws get in the way of their drug profiteering. See the Opium Wars for more details. The Indian colonial government loathed to give up the income which cannabis represented, illegally continued to sell it to other parts of the empire, Caribbean islands included. Due to this long-standing trade, many of Britain's Afro-Caribbean immigrants were coming from places where cannabis was accessible and its use relatively socially acceptable, and from the empire's point of view, even profitable. As humans tend to do, many who used the drug, continued the habit in Britain. Some struggled to understand why it was so heavily criminalized and found legal intoxicants expensive or hard to obtain. Some simply found alcohol's strong effects inconvenient. Now, it's important we don't fall into the trap of thinking because most cannabis users were black that most blacks were users. The reality is, um, I don't know what proportion of the black population smoked weed. But it is notable that all of my sources which um, examine the black experience in the UK don't even mention the drug. The sources which are looking at cannabis use in the UK use the word many, which um, is a deliberate vaguety and sort of the historian's way of saying, I don't know, but more than an insignificant amount. Since the drug was essentially unused by Britain's white population, it had a racialized association with Indian and black men. This was exacerbated by the press, who would often mention the race of those arrested for Indian hemp possession. Uh, Indian hemp's an old-fashioned term for cannabis. Black crime was a special point of fascination for the British press. Novelist Colin McKynes, who took a special interest in 1950s London subcultures, pointed out that black criminals, quote, when detected, pursued, and punished, enjoy from the Sunday press a generous publicity withheld from native entrepreneurs, end quote. Overall, though, in the late 40s, the press held little interest in the drug, beyond mentioning it as the reason this or that Indian sailor or black man had been arrested. 
That was all to change in 1950. The police got a tip that hemp was being distributed in a Soho jazz club, Club 11. They raided the racially mixed club, which was packed with 250 people. On the floor, they discovered 23 packets of hemp, a few joints, a packet of cocaine, and an empty vial of morphine. Ten arrests were made. This successful raid was followed by another one on the Paramount Dance Hall in Tottenham Court Road, which hosted 500 people. This time, 20 packets of hemp were found on the floor, and eight arrests were made. The press's attention was aroused by the raids. The racial mixing discovered in the clubs was a particular point of curiosity. One article opened with the line, quote, Teenage girls in bobby socks and colored men wearing zoot suits and wide-brimmed hats, end quote. Throughout the late 40s and 50s, metropolitan jazz clubs acted as a melting pot for young people from all different backgrounds. Colin McKines would write in his 1959 novel, Absolute Beginners, quote, The great thing about the jazz world, and all the kids who enter it, is that no one, not a soul, cares what your class is, what your race is, what your income, or if you're a boy, or a girl, or bent, or versatile, or what you are. You meet all kinds of cats, on absolutely equal terms, who can clue you up in all kinds of directions. End quote. The soundtrack of these clubs was bebop, sort of sped up jazz. The discovery of young racial mixing in the presence of cannabis gave birth to a narrative of black men pushing the drug on white girls. As one 1950 article put it, teenage girls are falling victim to marijuana cigarettes given to them by coloured seamen. This was a narrative that could sell papers, and a wave of articles and exposés about weed came out in 1951 and 52. The British public knew very little about the effects of the drug, allowing space for sensationalism. The main danger of the drug presented by the press was moral corruption. Tabloid crime journalist uh, Duncan Webb was one of those wishing to cash in on the fresh new outrage. Webb was a part of a generation of crime reporters you see romanticized in the era's noir films and novels. Getting beaten up or threatened in pursuit of a story was all part of the job. Apparently, he even dated the ex-girlfriend of serial killer John Hay in order to better cover the case. Webb wrote his cannabis exposés with all the flair of the era's sensational crime fiction. His 1951 article opened, quote, In a London street last night, I walked up to a flashily dressed negro and murmured, Got any stuff? Without a word, he slipped a thin brown packet into my hand. I gave him half a crown. Then we parted ways. He to tout his wares elsewhere, I to examine my purchase. This simply conducted transaction was the climax to an investigation into the growing national menace. Dope peddling among Britain's teenagers. End quote. Webb, true to form, didn't stop at just buying marijuana. 
he went on to self-experiment for the benefit of his readers. He described the effects under the subheading Temptation. I passed a burly policeman and my drug brain became possessed with the notion that I could throw him across the street with the greatest of ease. It was then I decided I must go home, to, to remove myself from any temptation. In my drugged state, I was a danger to other people, and myself. End quote. Criminal behaviour was a popular symptom of cannabis in news articles. A later expose claimed, quote, the marijuana smoker gets a mad criminal courage. Give him a gun and he will shoot. End quote. But this sort of moral corruption wasn't Webb's main focus. The fact that large amounts of cannabis was recovered from multiracial jazz clubs wasn't lost on him. Under the subheading, Girls Beg, Webb told readers, quote, Young girls in particular abuse themselves in a nauseating fashion before their suppliers, Negroes many of them. Sometimes the dealer tantalizes his victims, refusing to sell until one of the girls has danced with him. Eyes rolling, body twitching, a 16-year-old girl then slides into the motions of bebop in the arms of the black peddler. End quote. Duncan Webb's portrayal of a drug transaction bears more than a whiff of resemblance to 19th and early 20th century white slave trade scare stories. The archetype of these stories would follow a white woman who was seduced by some foreign agent, drugged and then raped. Sullied and in the clutches of drug addiction, she would then be forced into prostitution. In general, tabloid articles covering black men and white women mixing pushed these white slave trade themes of decadence, corruption, and attempted rescue. As I said in the introduction, racial prejudice got stronger the closer it approached the home or private life. Interracial sex and families were a prime social concern during the 50s. Due to most of the black migrants being men, black men and white women was the variant usually explored and worried over. A 1958 poll found that 71% of people disapproved of mixed marriages and only 13% approved. In the same year, topical news discussion show, People in Trouble, examined the subject. One of those interviewed was Mr. Wentworth Day. And uh, you were, in fact, an advisor to the Egyptian government and the Sudan, so you know what you're talking about. Well, I, I've been there and seen them in their own home surroundings. And as a parliamentary candidate, I've been into a good many working-class houses. Over here? Where there have been, oh yes, indeed. Uh, where there have been many mixed marriages, and I've seen the children. And my view is this, that no first-class nation can afford to produce a race of mongrels. And that is what we're doing. Sooner or later, that's going to come back on the children. Those children are unfair hostages to the future. It's unfair on the children, it's unfair on the nation. It's one of the reasons why France is a third-class nation today. Too much mixed blood. Are you implying that a half-caste is in any way mentally deficient? Definitely. But there's well, nothing to prove this at all. That unfortunate child is born with an inferiority complex. If it isn't born with it, it grows up with it. You can't possibly say that it's born with an inferiority complex. That's something that we instill into it later. We may instill it, and also the pure black people may instill it themselves. 
because they have an instinctive contempt, you know, for what they call white trash. But if conditions were different, there was not the social prejudice, such as you have, and there were not the practical difficulties, then if two people were in love, wouldn't you recommend them to get married? Love is a very curious thing. It depends on how you define it. I think a lot of these mixed marriages are caused purely by downright sex hmm. or sloppy sentimentality. Those were actually some of his tamer opinions. I, uh, I uh, censored out his more offensive assertions. But to be fair to the time, Wentworth Day was presented as an extreme opinion, and his pseudoscientific racial eugenic style of prejudice was uh, dying out at this point. But then again, its uh, presence on national TV shows this was probably a slow death. Another extreme opinion was offered by Lord Altrincham. But I'm sure that I would never be prejudiced on grounds of colour when it came to marrying. I can't imagine being prejudiced on that ground. It seems to me quite ridiculous that anybody should be. But you might not be, but perhaps your friends would and your neighbours and uh, people who would uh, influence your children. Well, that's the whole trouble, isn't it? I mean, it's this, it's this social atmosphere yes. against mixed marriages which creates the problem. It's because people have got a, a complete bugbear in their minds, a completely unreal idea that, that uh, mixed marriages are bad, that they create a, a climate in which it's difficult for children uh, of, of, of mixed parentage. Yes. But if, if there weren't the atmosphere, then it would be perfectly normal, just like people with fair hair and dark hair in, intermarrying. But at the moment, this atmosphere is so strong that one would hesitate to recommend a mixed marriage even to two people who are in love. Yes. Well, if they're really in love, they won't need to have any recommendation. No. They'll actually do it. And the more people that do it, the quicker this beastly atmosphere will be removed. Well, how do you think we can help remove it? I think just uh, those of us who believe in it uh, say so as often as possible. And those of us who fall in love with coloured people get married as quickly as possible. Lord Altrincham would later give up his title, become John Grigg and a substantial figure in the anti-apartheid movement. That a man saying that race isn't really a thing and shouldn't be a factor in love is presented as extreme shows how difficult racial mixing was for the public to accept. The host, Dan Farson, offered his own opinion. We've heard the two extreme points of view of Mr. Wentworth Day and Lord Altrincham. I find it deeply shocking that an enormous number of people in this country would agree with Wentworth Day. However, one can be too enlightened about the subject. However much one would like things to be, one has to face the fact that there is this great social prejudice and all the practical difficulties. In fact, I cannot honestly say that I am really in favor of mixed marriages. But that is because things are as they are, and I can only hope that they will change. One of Wentworth Day's opinions which wouldn't have been seen as exceptional or extreme was his suspicion that interracial relationships revolved around sex. There were deep cultural anxieties and jealousy surrounding black masculinity and sexual ability. Here's journalist Marvin Jones. There's a sort of mythology according to which black men have enormous sexual potency, enormous sexual power, uh, <laughs> which white men can't equal, allegedly. Uh, so there's that kind of talk. Uh, 
and then there's talk about uh, I wouldn't like, I wouldn't let my sister go out with one of them. You know, no decent girl would go out with a black man. This kind of talk. White women who did break this taboo were either seen as innocents in mortal danger, or conversely, as promiscuous and sex crazed. Female sexuality was also a point of social anxiety and. An overactive sexual desire, or perversion, was often blamed for their wish to go out with a black man. As a result, these women were often seen as having been corrupted or possessing loose morals. One black man would point out, quote, If I was seen walking down Lime Street with the Queen of England and no one recognized who she was, it would be assumed that she was a street girl, end quote. These women were subjected to particularly unkind treatment. White people would never speak to you. As they used to pass you, they used to spit. It was terrible. You know, people can be so cruel. Why? I mean, we're all human beings. All human beings. In To Sir With Love, E.R. Braithwaite would agonize over how society would treat the woman he had a huge crush on if he acted on his feelings. Quote, How long would our happy association survive the malignity of stares which were deliberately intended to make a woman feel unclean, as if she had abjectly degraded not merely herself, but all womanhood? Only the strongest women could survive such treatment. End quote. As cannabis was seen as a facilitator of racial mixing, the, uh, the supposed moral degradation involved in racial mixing became a symptom of cannabis use by proxy. Often racial mixing was seen as the larger issue. When, uh, when the Paramount Dance Hall closed down shortly after the raid, drugs had nothing to do with it. Instead, it closed down because of all the complaints they were getting about black men dancing with white women. The managing director of the dance hall's owning company would tell the press, quote, Frankly, I'm not in favor of colored men dancing with white girls. You know what it can lead to. And so, although we did not mind colored people making the dance hall their meeting place, our hospitality must now end. End quote. And like that, the doors of another place of leisure are closed to people with darker skin, and the color bar becomes a little tighter. Beyond racial mixing, cannabis was often associated with the moral corruption of youthful, and especially female, independence. In another of Webb's weed exposés, he found a jazz-dancing, marijuana-smoking, occasionally nude modeling, 19-year-old to be his subject. He asked her, Quote, what are your plans for the future? She answered, quote, I don't know. I want to travel. I want to see France. I don't want to get married. I don't want a career. I've got no ambition. All I want to do with my life is have a good time, End quote. This answer was Webb's aha moment. He presented it as the conclusion to her corruption and proof of the evil marijuana peddlers were wreaking on British teenagers. Ex-policeman Robert Fabian, who, through his radio and TV work, was better known to the British public as 
Fabian of the Yard. Stories of the war against crime as told by the detective of the century, ex-superintendent Robert Fabian. Here is another true crime story from the memoirs of one of the world's foremost crime detection experts, ex-detective superintendent Fabian of... In 1956, he'd write a very pulpy piece for an Aberdeen newspaper. He managed to stuff it with all the drug scaremongering greatest hits, black criminality, racial mixing, and female activity anxiety. It opened with the story of a black drug dealer and pimp, Eddie the Villain, before jumping to a totally unrelated story covering a degradation of a 17-year-old girl, Shirley, who visited jazz clubs against her parents' wishes. She was found at the Club Eleven in Paramount Raids. It's heavily implied she was high. Fabian made sure to mention that black men were present. Shirley's fate was a typical of the white slave trade motif. Quote, She was chained to him tighter than ever was a medieval slave girl by the Bengals of dope hunger. End quote. It was a rather novel variety of drug scaremongering, as it as it readily admitted that the UK didn't actually have a drug problem. The article reads more like a warning against youths associating with bohemian types and visiting multiracial jazz clubs. And by 56, the supposed danger of jazz clubs was well entrenched in the public's imagination. A couple weeks prior, the paper's jazz columnist felt the need to write an article specifically to dispel the association between jazz clubs and reefer cigarettes. Apparently that sort of thing only happened in cool clubs in London, New York, and Los Angeles, or dives. It should be pointed out that the press's themes of racial mixing and female degradation weren't new or exclusive to cannabis. Writer Maricone found the same themes in the 20s, just swap out cannabis and black men for opium and cocaine and Chinese men. The aesthetics may have changed, but the social fears surrounding women and who they were sleeping with remained the same. Even after Middle England outwardly accepted racial mixing, social fears around women were still projected onto drugs. Sociologist Shane Blackman points out how, during the height of the ecstasy scene in the 90s and 2000s, Tabloids played up fears surrounding the fallen woman and male homosexuality. The actual characteristics of the drug matter little. What is important to these journalists are the social fears of the time. And news articles didn't need to be as explicit as those written by Duncan Webb or the detective of the century, Robert Fabian. The British public was perfectly capable of reading between the lines. In 1953, the West London Observer, which serviced an increasingly multicultural area, ran the headline, 17-year-old girl smoked Indian hemp. The first sentence elaborated, quote, A pretty, blonde-haired 17-year-old girl was said by Detective Inspector Margaret Heald to have been smoking Indian hemp on and off since she met a colored man at a party 18 months ago. End quote. Now, as, um... Any journalist worth their salt will tell you, 
everything important about your story should be included in that first sentence. It's also where you include your uh, your hook, you know, something provocative to give your reader an uh, emotional response. This article about a teenager getting arrested for smoking weed placed importance on demonstrating the girl's sexual appeal and that the degrading agent was introduced through racial mixing. As a hook, it worked well. Black immigration had been a contentious issue in the West London Observer's letter section. R. Thorburn of Castleton Road seemed to have felt she was about to have the last word on the issue, and titled her letter, Answer This One! Her final point was, quote, Lastly, the front page of this week's WLO has a story of a 17-year-old girl getting Indian hemp from a colored man, which speaks for itself, end quote. A couple weeks later, the West London Observer published a letter by John Bean, stating he was forming an organization to ban non-white immigrants. The fourth point of the author's manifesto read, quote, We constantly hear of white girls being induced to become drug addicts through the machinations of reefer-smoking Negroes. This degradation of our women must stop, end quote. The campaigns of people like John Bean would end up proving successful. In 1962, the Commonwealth Immigrants Act specifically targeted people from non-white colonies. Labour leader Hugh Gateskill described the act as, quote, cruel and brutal anti-colour legislation, end quote. In general, the association between cannabis and blacks offered a convenient way of publicly attacking them without resorting to the language of someone like Wentworth Day and risk being labelled as extreme. By associating a group or practice such as racial mixing with a drug, you could place yourself on the morally safe ground of being anti-drug rather than racist. Of course, this is all recognisable stuff. Protecting white women and anti-drug sentiments are still successfully used to campaign against racial immigration today. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some I assume are good people. The, uh, the criminality of cannabis use raised the stakes to all of this. It added an extra tool in the arsenal of those who wished to stop racial mixing. If the warnings of the press failed or a young woman's parents couldn't exercise control over her, there was always an authoritative way of stopping racial mixing. The police. Sometimes this was direct. In 1963, a police officer and a father were both charged with framing a black man who was going to marry his daughter. They planted a stolen jack and cannabis in his room. Others saw the big picture potential to this criminality. In 1955, tabloid journalist Derek Agnew ghost wrote the book Viper. It presented the autobiography of a middle-class white 27-year-old who got into the jazz bebop subculture, smoked weed in this multi-ethnic environment, and eventually got addicted to heroin and cocaine, which he gave up at the end of the book. While the uh, physical and mental distress of heroin addiction offers much of the book's melodrama, cannabis is presented as just as serious of a menace for its role in causing moral devastation. Derek Agnew signed off the book with, quote, 
let's face another unpalatable factor too, that, like it or not, it is the black races who are responsible for the post-war spread of hemp smoking in Britain. The men who hold this view are not anti-colour, they are not conducting a witch hunt against West Indians or Africans. They are stating a simple fact. Thousands of these immigrants are pouring into Britain every year. A majority of them smoke hemp. They do not leave their vice at home, they bring it with them. And the blunt truth is, numbers of them take a perverted satisfaction in lighting up a white girl. I know, I've watched it happen, and it is a horrible sight. We cannot stop them entering Britain. We can, at least, put them out of society's way for a long, long time, once they are convicted of drug offences. The law must be strengthened all round. Until it is, we are fighting a tiger with a bamboo cane. End quote. Viper was serialized in a Newcastle newspaper and advertised in The Guardian with a complimentary quote from Labour MP Kenneth Robinson. Merrick Cohn, who admittedly is better writing punchy arguments than me, offers a biting summary of Agnes' manifesto. Quote, to put it another way, we can't stop blacks coming over here, but we can use drug laws to criminalize them, lock them up, and keep them out of our society. Prophetic words. Viper is less a drug text than that of a society alarmed about racial pollution and the consequent eruption of deviant subcultures. The drug that dissolves barriers between the races is the one that instills the most terror. The objective, individual misery of heroin and cocaine addiction, is a side issue. That can be beaten on its own, Viper allows. But the race mixing will take more than medical treatment. End quote. Cohn was uh, offering his perspective from the 1980s when he wrote prophetic words. But even at this early stage, drug laws were being specifically aimed at blacks. Before Derek Agnew, the head of the Home Office's drug branch, Thornton, shared a similar statement in a 1951 report. Quote, I think I should take this opportunity to place on the record that, unless something can be done, by any of the authorities concerned, to stem the invasion of unemployed coloured men, mostly British subjects, from Africa and the British West Indies, we shall, in very short space of time, be faced in this country with a serious hashish smoking problem. They are of little use in our labour market, and ultimately drift to the west end of London, Tottenham Court Road area, where they associate with lower class white girls, drink, peddle hashish cigarettes, and generally present a problem to the police. End quote. His superior at the Home Office felt he was sensationalizing, and saw no need for such concern over what, on the face of it, was a, quote, small drug problem. And the Colonial Office disagreed with his negative portrayal of black migrants. Despite this, the spread of Cannabis to the white population was a large concern for the police. Officers generally seemed to share the public's concern over cannabis's role in causing the degradation of white women and catalyzing racial mixing. An RAF servicewoman who was at the Club 11 raid said the affair, quote, left me filled with resentment of the police because I was accused of possessing low moral standards, fraternizing with blacks, 
not the not the word she quotes the police using, and the likelihood of becoming a drug addict. End quote. In 1953, Detective Sergeant George Lyle gave a talk about illegal drugs to an attentive audience at the Society for the Study of Addiction. He noted that a large amount of contraceptives were found in the women's toilet during the Paramount Dancehall Raid, and informed the society, quote, Some young girls take to prostitution to pay for the drug. Hemp may sap their moral fiber. End quote. With these concerns in hand, the police seem to start targeting black communities specifically. While the raids of 1950 focused on multiracial jazz clubs, in 51, the police used a drug warrant to raid a black pub, only arresting two men. As the police report excitedly points out, this may have been the first time the police had ever used the extreme measure of raiding a pub for drugs. The reason given for the raid was they got a tip that cannabis was being sold there, and that the regulars had changed from a white population to a black one. There seemed to be very little strategic reason for the raid, considering the small amount of arrests, especially compared to the jazz club raids. Uh, these raids were supposedly so successful in suppressing the trade of cannabis that the resulting shortage is often seen as a significant factor for the jazz subculture taking up heroin. Historian James Mills would write of the raid on the Black Pub, quote, Given the small yield of arrests, it is possible to wonder how far the warrant issued under the Dangerous Drugs Act was any more than an excuse for the police to intervene in a public space that had been contested by locals and migrants and successfully colonized by the latter. End quote. The raid was the beginning of a trend. The association between blacks and drugs offered an excuse for the police to harass black communities and target centers of black resistance. In the 1960s and 70s, the Mangrove Restaurant was the heart of Notting Hill's black activism. The black community, not only in Notting Hill, but all over this country, has a certain experience with the police. And that experience, in my terms, is one which could be easily described as brutal, harassing, and generally repressive. And that on the 9th of August 1970, the Action Committee in Defense of the Mangrove Restaurant, which is a West London restaurant in Notting Hill, called the demonstration because that restaurant had been consistently harassed by the police. There were three raids on the restaurant, ostensibly for drugs, nothing was found. And so the community responded with the demonstration. The police diagnosed the restaurant as a drug den and raided it 12 times in 19 months. No drugs were ever found on the premises. The, uh, the crescendo of heavy-handed brute force tactics fell in the turbulent 80s, the era of Thatcherite law and order. The black neighborhood of St. Paul's, Bristol, was raided in 1980 and 86. The latter involved 600 police officers. Both resulted in riots following resistance. The biggest problem in St. Paul's is the youngsters, the police aggression with the, with the colored youths around. 
and police aggression. Yes, police. They have pushed the boys too far. It's always been the police. The charges of harassment are levelled against the police force as a whole, but it's the community consultation... In 1985, a hundred police descended on the Villa Cross pub, netting them a small quantity of cannabis and sparking the Handsworth riots in Birmingham. The next year, 2,000 police were involved in Operation Condor, where the police drove a train into Brixton, and according to the Express, quote, with officers crouched below the windows, halted in the heart of the flashpoint area. Then police, some of them armed, poured out of the carriages commando style, and raided shops and houses backing onto the tracks. End quote. This is all done to the muffled backdrop of ex-police, priests, and community leaders asking why such militaristic tactics were needed to enforce drug laws in black areas. Changes were promised in 1999 after the Stephen Lawrence Inquiry diagnosed the Met Police Force as, quote, institutionally racist. However, this process has evidently proven slow. Despite their best efforts, the 1950s drug branches' fears did manifest. A young generation, curious to experience the cultures and habits of their new neighbours, did take to the drug. Eventually, cannabis would be added to White Britain's drug staples of tranquilizers, amphetamines, tobacco, cocaine, hypnotics, and alcohol. Today, the white population smokes weed at a higher rate than the black population, and takes so-called Class A drugs at a, at a much higher rate. Yet, the police have struggled to shake off the association between drugs and black men which was so strongly entrenched in the 1950s. Quite a serious incident. The reason I stopped you yeah. is when you came out of the barns, yeah. no offence to you, but you're a, you're a black male, OK? I'm not going to lie to you. So it's racist right? you stopped me. I'm not saying that at all. The so reason I've stopped you, I'll, I'll explain if you let me finish, yeah. all right? In this area, we have a number of drug dealers, I'm not saying you're a drug dealer, that oh. come up from other areas that don't live anywhere I, around I, here. I live here. So I, I know you, you, you might know that, but I don't. In 1950s Britain, the black population was largely treated as an invasive species by the government and public. Collaborators were treated with extreme prejudice. Black people didn't enjoy the same protections from the police as the white populace, which was proved time and again during the period's race rights. The police's main anxiety surrounding cannabis wasn't its use by the black population, but shielding the white populace from it. The racial bias in stop and search may show they are still treated as an other. Black musician and writer Arkala, who has had decades of experience being stopped by the police, wrote in 2016, What racialized stop and search is about, in London at least, is letting young black boys and men know their place in British society. Letting them know who holds the power and showing them that their day can be held up even in a nice liberal area like Camden in a way that will never happen to their white friends if they still have any left by the time they have their first encounter with the police. It is about social engineering and about the conditioning of expectations, about getting black people used to the fact that they are not real and full citizens so they should learn to not expect the privileges that would usually accrue from such a status.
Racialized stop and search is also a legacy of more direct and brutal forms of policing the black body in the UK from back in the days before political correctness. The 1950s press used cannabis as a tool to stoke up fear surrounding this other population, exploiting the British concern over what their women were doing, who they were sleeping with. Their editorial staff were well plugged into the nation's anxieties. Their success is evident in how quickly cannabis went from a colonial curiosity to a social menace, despite the government and some of the authors describing it as a small problem. As I keep saying, it's not about the drug, and that 1950s drug articles so closely mirrored the ones from the 1920s demonstrates little advancement on these issues. The people of the 1950s were clearly struggling to come to terms with the scars of the 19th and early 20th century, and shake off ideas surrounding racial hygiene. Just as we, despite our progress, despite our less offensive language, are still dealing with the scars of the 20th century, particularly when it comes to our treatment of black citizens. Unless we are, at the very least, able to admit these wounds exist, they're likely to continue to fester. For reference and a script of this episode, please visit the Hooked on History website at hookedonhistory.co.uk. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating on whatever app you listen to it on. It uh, makes a big difference in giving the series some exposure. Also, any donations would be hugely appreciated. You can donate on the website at hookedonhistory.co.uk or on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash hookedonhistory. If you have any questions or wish to contact me, please do so at hookedonhistorypodcast at gmail.com, or on Twitter at history underscore hooked. I'd like to thank my brother Nick Brown for the original music, and Marek Cohn for his helpful feedback and encouragement on my script. <laughs>